The Story of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight It was the sixth day of Christmas, the eve of the new year, and the whole of Arthur's court was enjoying a winter feast. All through the day guests made merry and sang carols, and they danced and sang all night long. Six geese had been roasted and more meats added to the feast, along with as much bread and stew and mince pies as anyone could stuff into their faces. Everyone had given and received their presents, and the wine and jokes were flowing freely. Arthur and Guinevere were holding court, and with them were all their closest friends and the knights of the round table, Sir Bors and Sir Percival, Sir Galahad and Sir Lancelot, Sir Tristan and Arthur's nephew, Sir Mordred. And of course, another of Arthur's nephews, Sir Gawain. He was Arthur's closest friend and confidant, the most loyal, the most reliable of his knights, but the most daring too. The first course had been served and the musicians had finished their first set when the doors swung open and a giant of a horseman appeared in the hall. Half the size of a troll, he was the mightiest man anyone there had ever seen, riding a huge horse equal to his size. And he was green. Not just wearing green, though he was, but he was a green man. His clothing was all green trimmed with gold, his tight coat and the rich fur-trimmed robe he wore over it, the hood that lay over his shoulders, the hose on his calves, all were of a green richer than emeralds. He was barefoot, and even his legs were green, and not just his saddle and bridle and stirrups were green, but the very horse he rode was green. His green hair fell around his shoulders, and his green beard flowed down his chest, and his horse's green mane was bound in gold. He wore no armour, no helmet, nor chainmail shirt, nor plate of armour. He carried no sword, no shield, no javelin. Instead, he carried an axe in one hand, made of green steel and beaten gold, and a bundle of holly in the other, like the branches strung across the hall to decorate the castle for the winter festival. He rode his horse all the way across the great hall, making his way to the dais with head held high, ignoring the shocked whispers all around him. "'Where is the governor of this gathering?' he cried, though it was surely plain to see where Arthur sat, in the place of honour on the dais, flanked by his queen and wearing his golden crown. The round table's equality was for gatherings of knights. This was a feast for all the manor, and he was elevated in the place of honour accordingly. Still, Arthur stood and spread out his arms and welcomed the stranger. "'Lord, you are most welcome to my home,' he declared. "'I am Arthur, King of the Britons.' Please sit with us and tell us what you are seeking. Nay, I thank you, said the stranger, for to sit is not my errand. I am come to seek the famed knights of the round table to test their strength. If it is battle you seek, said Arthur, his face hardening and his hand moving to his sword belt, then you won't fail to find it here. By this branch I come in peace, said the stranger, holding up the holly branch. If it were war I was seeking, I would have come armed with sword and spear and wearing my helm. Besides, I would not fight these children. Here he gestured to the knights. That would be an act of dishonour on my part. No, it is only a Christmas pastime I am proposing. A yuletide game to test these young, eager knights. His eyes travelled across the high table, taking in the beardless faces turned up towards him, clutching their sword hilts under the table. "'Which of you will be bold enough to answer my challenge?' he asked, a small smile showing under his thick green beard, a small twinkle in his eye. "'Whoever accepts will receive this axe,' and he held up his green and gold weapon, "'as my Christmas gift.' "'What is the challenge?' asked Sir Gawain, as the other knights muttered around him, still bristling at the earlier insult to their manhood. "'Take this axe and deal me one blow with it.' I will stand statue still on this floor and take whatever blow you choose to inflict upon me without flinching, just one. And then, in a year and a day, I will repay the favour, and the challenger must stand statue still and allow me to deal him one blow in return without flinching, using a weapon of my choice. The muttering increased in intensity, but no one seemed altogether eager to leap to the challenge. The stranger's green eyebrows bristled and he harumphed into his green beard. What, is this not the court of King Arthur? he demanded. Are these not the famed knights of the round table? Where now is your haughtiness and your high conquests, your fierceness and fell mood and your fine boasting? And then, worst of all, he laughed at them. 
His laugh was a big and deep-throated guffaw, a laugh of true amusement and good humour underscoring a surface level of scorn and pity. Arthur felt the colour rise in his smooth cheeks, anger and embarrassment vying for position in his wine-enhanced emotions. "'Good sir!' cried Arthur, rising. "'What you ask is madness, and it is no surprise to me that my men, being not mad, have chosen not to answer you. But I am not afraid.' Give me your axe and I will deal you a blow and have done with it. And with that he walked around the high table and held out his arm, and the stranger threw the axe into his hand and surprisingly lightly dismounted his horse to stand before the king. They stood opposing one another, the stranger softly stroking his long and bushy green beard, Arthur gently stroking the green wood of the axe, considering his blow. Wait, cried Sir Gawain, rising from his bench. It is not fitting for so many bold men to keep their seats and leave their liege lord and host to answer such a challenge. I am the weakest of your knights, and the least witty and the feeblest as well. I present the least loss if this game goes awry. I am expendable. I am only given a place of honour because you are my uncle. Do not waste yourself on this foolish game. Let me take your place. Arthur weighed the axe in his hand, considering. Very well, he said slowly. I can tell that you are eager to prove yourself, Gawain, and I will not deny you that opportunity. Come here. Gawain left the high table and knelt before his king. Arthur bent down to give him the axe, and as he did so, the king murmured in his ear, If you choose your one blow carefully, kinsman, and teach this stranger his lesson, I think you will be well able to bear any blow he tries to repay later. Gawain understood. He took the axe and rose to face the stranger. I am Sir Gawain, kinsman to the king, he said. What is your name, Sir Knight, and where shall I find you in a year and a day to fulfil our bargain? Pleased to meet you, Sir Gawain, said the stranger politely. I will not tell you my name, nor where I live just yet, for you might try to find me too early. Come seek for me in a year and a day, and you will find me. Now to it! And the stranger knelt down on the ground and pushed aside his long green hair to bare his green neck to the knight. Gawain gripped the axe hard, remembered Arthur's words to him, and brought the weapon down swiftly on the stranger's bare neck. It was a good blow, strong and true. The green man's head fell from his shoulders to the floor with a satisfying plop. Blood burst from the neck, but the body remained in place, kneeling. As Gawain watched with wide eyes, the powerful green legs rose up, strong as ever, and the green arms reached out to pluck the head from the floor where it lay. The stranger returned to his calm and placid horse and leapt back into the green saddle, carrying his green head by the green hair. Blood still pouring from the neck, he held up the head that the green eyes might look straight at Gawain, Arthur just behind him, and the whole high table of Arthur's knights, all rooted to their place in shock. The green mouth grinned red. In a year and a day, said the green head, on New Year's morning, come, Sir Gawain, to the green chapel and look for me, the knight of that place, or be called a coward forevermore. And with that, he turned his horse around and rode out of the castle. Arthur forced a laugh, putting his arm around his queen and saying, Dear lady, be not downcast at all. Such cunning play well becomes the Christmas tide, and we have seen a marvel. Come, Sir Gawain, hang up your new axe over the table so we can tell everyone about this adventure. And Sir Gawain came and handed over the axe to display it, and his mouth smiled and laughed along, while his eyes twitched nervously at the sight of it. Christmas Eve the following year, and the snow was swirling in the forest, the falling night bringing a bitter cold. Sir Gawain, on the road since the Feast of All Hallows, bent his head against the wind and prayed. I beseech thee, O Lord and Mary, he said, for some harbour wherewith honour I might hear the mass and thy matins for Christmas Day tomorrow. He did not add that he was cold and miserable, and tired of endlessly searching the forests and the wild Welsh mountains for a strange elvish man whose name he did not know, whose home he could not find, and who would behead him if he did, by sheer luck, come across him. He looked up and saw a moat peeking through the trees ahead of him, surrounding a castle. And what a castle it was! It was huge, and its many turrets shimmered and shone through the trees, hewn of hard stone, with chalk-white chimneys and radiant white towers. It was the most beautiful manor Gawain had ever seen. 
He rode up eagerly to the gates and was met by the porter. "'Good sir!' cried Gawain. "'May I seek shelter here? "'I confess I am lost, and I think the snow is closing in.' "'Certainly,' replied the porter. "'You will be welcome here, sir knight.' And he opened up the gates and ushered the shivering knight inside. Gawain's horse was ushered off to the stables, and he himself was taken straight into the great hall, huffing on his hands to warm them as he took off his gauntlets. A bright fire was burning in the large stone fireplace, and the hall was full of people eating and drinking, all of whom paused to smile and welcome him. He was taken to the dais, where the lord and lady of the manor sat, and was introduced to them. The lord was a big, well-muscled man in his prime, a thick, bushy brown beard overlaying a robe of velvet that might have been a very dark blue or a very dark green. The lady was young and extremely beautiful, with rosy cheeks and bright eyes, the perfect skin of her breast and throat left bare, and not covered up by veils like the older women, though her hair was bound back in a single plait and held in place by a gold circlet studded with pearls. Gawain could hardly take his eyes off her, and he could not help noticing that she barely shifted her gaze from him either. Gawain introduced himself, and there was much excitement from all present at having the famous Sir Gawain of the Round Table joining them all for a Christmas feast. In all the hullabaloo, somehow Gawain never quite caught the names of the lord and lady who were his hosts. By the time they showed him to his chamber, which was well appointed with a large and comfortable bed, the centrepiece, it seemed rather rude to reveal that he did not know their names. And so, as the snow continued to whirl outside, Sir Gawain remained comfortable in the castle with his delightful hosts. He attended Mass with them on Christmas Day, and again the next day on the Feast of St. Stephen. He feasted with them and made merry. The meats were excellent, the bread warming and the party lively. But best of all, Gawain spent the days talking with the elegant lady of the manor. For the two found that they enjoyed the same carol dances and the same jests, preferred the same meats and the same fireside tales. And so they spent their evenings sat together on the dais, heads bent close, talking and laughing. On the third day, as the snow started to fall more lightly, Gawain approached his host and explained that he must take his leave. "'I don't know how to thank you, good sir, for your hospitality,' he said. "'But I have an errand I cannot forsake. I must meet with the Green Knight at the Green Chapel on New Year's Day, and since I have no idea where on earth either may be found, I fear I must leave in the morning.' "'You are in luck there, my friend,' said his host in his big, booming voice." "'For I know the place of which you speak. "'The Green Chapel is but two miles from here. "'You must stay with us until New Year's Day, "'and then ride out and complete your errand, whatever it may be. "'When the day comes, I shall point you in the right direction myself.' "'Gawain almost fell at the man's feet, so profuse was his thanks. "'How, sir, how can I ever repay you?' he exclaimed. "'I tell you what,' said the Lord, with a twinkle in his eye. "'Why don't we have a little Christmas game?' I will be out hunting from the day after tomorrow until New Year's. You are clearly weary from long weeks of toil, so you stay here in the castle and rest. When I return each evening, whatever I win in the wood will be yours, and you must give to me whatever gain you may have made here in the castle in exchange. Do we have a deal? Certainly, sir, said Gawain, laughing, thinking that he had surely got the better end of this deal. By the fifth day of Christmas... The snow lay gently on the ground, and the sky was clear and bright. The lord and his men and his dogs set off early for the hunt, blowing on their beagles, the dogs barking and the horses neighing. Gawain's horse watched them go from his warm stable a little enviously. But Gawain himself was happy and content to lie in his big bed, the bed curtains pulled all around him under the thick coverlet he had been provided. The winter sun was well up when he heard a sound at the door, and softly and slowly it opened. He heard the sound of light footsteps crossing the room and coming towards him, and burrowed himself deeper down into the bedding and closed his eyes and pretended to sleep. To his shock and mild horror, the bed curtains were pulled back and a quick squint under his closed eyes revealed to him the lady of the house, who slipped around the curtain and simply lay herself down quietly beside him. Gawain could not think what to do, Pretending to wake, he yawned and stretched, and acted startled as he turned over in the bed. "'Some knight you are who can be so easily snuck up upon,' said the lady with a laugh. "'Now I shall bind you in this bed as a punishment.' Gawain affected a laugh while pulling his sleep shirt tightly around him. "'I confess I am caught,' he said. "'But I think now I must rise from this bed and dress myself.' 
He nodded his head towards the door, hoping she would take the hint. But the lady did not budge from her spot. Do not go, she said softly. My husband and his men are all far away, and we are alone. She pulled invitingly at the spot where her dress hugged itself around the top of her breasts. Will you not stay with me? Madam, he said, swallowing hard. You are the most beautiful, the most lovely woman I have ever met, and I will happily talk and sing and dance with you all the live-long day, as we have been doing since I arrived. But I will not betray my host, who has done me no wrong. She smiled a little sadly. Very well, she said. Take this only, then. And she leaned over and kissed him softly on the lips, and then stole away. When the lord of the manor and his men returned that evening, they were in triumphant moods, for they had killed several deer. The lord presented the meat to Sir Gawain at the evening feast, which Gawain generously offered to share with all present. "'And now for our bargain,' said the lord. "'You must give me whatsoever you have gained in the castle today.' "'Certainly,' said Gawain with a smile. He strode forward, took his host's head in his hands, and kissed the man softly on the lips. "'There, sir,' he said. You have all my gains from today. The Lord smiled, laughed, and turned happily to the feast. The next day once again dawned bright and clear, and the hunting party left early. Gawain once again lay long in his bed, resting, but he was not entirely surprised when once again he heard the door open and soft footsteps announced the arrival of the lady of the manor in his room. Her hair was unbound and hung loose down her back. As she sat on the bed next to him and leaned over, he felt the ends of it brush his shoulders and his face. "'Do you have another love, Sir Gawain?' she asked him. "'Have you pledged your troth to another, or received another's favour? "'No,' said Gawain hoarsely. "'I have no other lover, no. "'Nor, I think, will I ever. "'But I will not betray my host, who has been so kind to me.' "'Very well,' she sighed. "'Once again, as she rose, she leaned over and kissed him. "'a long and deep kiss this time, and then she left. "'When the hunting party returned, "'they were once again in good moods, "'though they hadn't caught quite as much this time. "'But when the Lord entered the Great Hall, "'he was carrying the huge head of a wild pig, "'and this he threw to Sir Gawain with a wicked grin. "'Gawain laughed and pretended horror at the thing in his hands, "'and indeed his horror was not entirely faked, "'for as he held it and stared into the dead pig's face, "'he could not help but remember the way the green knight's head "'had stared at them all from its place on the ground "'and spoken when held aloft by the strange green body. "'The rest of the pig was already roasting on the fire, "'and Gawain's mouth watered at the sight. "'Now for your part of our bargain,' said the lord with a smile, "'and Gawain nodded. "'He clasped his host round the neck, pulled his face forward, "'and kissed him long and deep. "'There,' he said. Now we are quits. You'll be a wealthy man if this continues, laughed the Lord, and they all turned their attention to the pig. New Year's Eve dawned bright and clear once again, and off went the hunting party at the crack of dawn. Gawain lay in his bed, less relaxed now, thinking about the following day and the green night, and the death blow he felt sure would come. When the lady of the manor made her way quietly into his room, he greeted her graciously, and they talked together for a long while. I love you, she said softly, as the sun rose in the sky and the morning wore on. I love you too, said Gawain, but I must go in the morning and I fear we will never meet again. And wanting to unburden himself to a sympathetic ear, he told her everything, and she wept quietly as he spoke. I will not stop you from keeping your vow to the green knight, she said, but I beg you, take this with you and she took off the green silk girdle she was wearing, a rich belt delicately embroidered. Gawain, nervous lest she start removing more clothing, protested that he must refuse such a costly gift. Nonsense, insisted the lady. I know it looks a poor gift. Gawain raised an eyebrow at that, but remained silent. But there is something you must know. Whoever wears this green girdle cannot be killed by the hand of another. So you see now you must take it and never part with it. But you must not tell my husband I have given it to you. You must swear right now that you will not. Gawain reached out a shaking hand. He was not sure he believed her, and he knew at once that if he swore what she promised he would break his word to his host. But deep down in his heart of hearts, he was afraid, and he wanted to live. 
and so he took it, and he swore an oath not to reveal that he had it to the lord of the manor. His voice caught in the words, but nevertheless he spoke them, and the lady kissed him on the lips and left him. That evening the hunt had not had quite so much luck, but the lord was still able to present Sir Gawain with a richly red-furred fox, and Gawain took him by the arms and kissed him on the lips, but the green girdle he kept hidden, and he did not give it up. The rest of the castle slept well as the first morning of the new year dawned, but Gawain tossed and turned in his magnificent bed all night. Over and over again in his mind's eye he saw the green knight's head fall from his shoulders and the green body pick up the head without a care in the world. He saw the axe he had won and imagined another weapon just as heavy and just as sharp coming down on his own bare neck. When he managed to doze fitfully, he saw visions of his own head falling from his shoulders, the mouth gaping like a fish as the light died in his eyes, and he found he preferred to stay awake. As promised, his lord rose early with him and showed him the path that led through the woods to the hill where he would find the green chapel. His horse had been made ready and he made his farewells. The lord disappeared into the manor and the porter showed him to the gate. Tied firmly around his thigh, underneath his armour, was the green girdle the lady had given him. He rode out into the early morning mist across the thin layer of white snow topped with frost, his weak legs pressing gently into the horse's flank to guide him, his fingers trembling a little where his hand rested on his sword hilt. When he reached the green hill where he had been told he would find the green chapel, he dismounted and led the horse slowly around, looking for any sign of building or human habitation. At first he thought perhaps his host had led him astray. Did he know about the girdle? Had he somehow guessed? For he could see nothing, though he walked all around the crown of the hill. But then, peering through the trees, he saw something not made by nature. On the edge of a small green clearing he saw a mound, a pagan barrow such as they used to bury kings in long ago. He tied his horse to a tree and slowly approached the barrow. All over the top of it it was overgrown with green grass and moss, but there was a hole in one end and inside was just a hollow empty cavern. He clambered onto the top of it and suddenly the silence was broken by a clattering, rasping sound, the sound of metal being sharpened on stone. Is this the green chapel? Gawain murmured quietly to himself. And then he stood up straight and called out loudly, Who and where is the master of this place? Well met, Sir Gawain, said a big, booming voice, and out of the trees strode the green knight. He was as unnaturally tall and as unnaturally green as ever, and his head was, thankfully, back where it should be, affixed to his neck. He carried a new Danish axe, freshly sharpened, and, of course, coloured all in shining green. Welcome, said the knight. Now I know you are true to your word, Sir Knight. And so, remove your helmet and bare your neck, and kneel before me. For it is my turn to offer you one blow, and you must take it without flinching, as we agreed. One stroke, said Gawain, fighting to keep his voice steady. And he knelt down in the snow, took off his helmet, and bowed his head. The green knight held his green axe aloft and brought it swooping down. But as it neared his neck, Sir Gawain flinched and glanced briefly to the side, and the axe cut through the air beside him and landed harmlessly in the snow. Ho, Sir Knight, cried the green knight in irritation. You must bear one stroke without flinching. That was our agreement. It was, and I intend to honour it, said Gawain. Forgive me, Sir Knight. For unlike yours, my head cannot be returned to my body after you have cut it off, and I confess, I was afraid. But I am ready now. Aim your blow. And Gawain knelt once again, head bent. This time he remained statue still, and did not flinch. But once again the axe came down harmlessly into the snow. Well done, exclaimed the Green Knight. Now I know you are true to your word, and now I shall deal my blow. Get on with it, man, exclaimed Gawain angrily. And so he did. A third time the great green axe came whistling down, and this time its aim was true and it made contact with Gawain's neck, slicing into the goose-pimpled skin and drawing blood. A little blood, and no more. 
For the huge knight tensed all his muscles to stop the blow when it had only grazed his opponent without reaching muscle or bone. Our bargain is fulfilled, he said, stepping back. Gawain stood up, and before his astonished eyes, the great green knight seemed to shrink until he was a tall and strong but human man. Although his clothes were unchanged, the colour of his skin and hair faded into the tones of human skin and the bushy brown beard of his host at the manor. Well met, Sir Gawain, he said again. Two feints I offered you for the two kisses you gave me in respect of our other bargain. I would not have cut you at all, but on the third day you kept something back from me. And he pointed at Gawain's thigh, where the girdle was secretly fastened under his armour. Gawain blushed bright red and made to untie the girdle, but the knight laughed and stopped him. Do not worry, good sir, he said. I told my wife to tempt you, to test you. I wanted to know if you were worthy or not. And you passed the test. Nearly. But I do not blame you for wanting to live. So do I. So do we all. Who are you? asked Gawain in wonder. I am Sir Bertilac de Haute Desert, said the knight with a smile, clasping Sir Gawain by the arm. I was enchanted and sent on a mission as the Green Knight by Morgan le Fay because she wanted to test the king and the knights of the round table and cause them to suffer. But I have no desire to see you or your king in pain. Keep the girdle, for green, as you can see, is my colour, and it will remind you of me. It will remind me of my failure to keep my oath, said Gawain shakily, still flushed with shame. I am a coward. It is not cowardice to want to live, or to refuse to die pointlessly at another's whim, said Sir Bertilac. Come, spend the rest of Christmastide with us, and then return home to tell your king of your adventure. And so they returned home together, and Gawain kept the girdle around his thigh and the scar on his neck for all his days, to remind him of his friends. The end. Welcome back to Creepy Classics, the podcast retelling and discussing ancient, medieval and early modern ghost stories and related type of stories. We've done at least one werewolf. This one is definitely undead of some description, maybe not exactly a ghost, uh, but ghost and related stories. Uh, so this is this year's Christmas episode, of course. Uh, and this is the story of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, um, which is known particularly from a medieval poem. Uh, it was written in Middle English, which is the same as uh, Geoffrey Chaucer's uh, Canterbury Tales. So Middle English is reasonably readable, or I thought so when we were doing A-levels. I, I thought if you had a good glossary, Middle English was fairly readable. I think I was the only person in my class that thought that. Um, in this case, I have used a translation just because time... <laughs> Time is pressing. Uh, so it was composed in the West Midlands at the end of the 14th century and copied out at the beginning of the 15th. And we're looking at basically the height of medieval Arthurian legend. And it was translated by J.R.R. Tolkien. So uh, it's easily available in Tolkien's translation, uh, who replicated as far as possible the traditional English poetic use of alliteration rather than rhyming. Um, so... Uh, traditional English poetry uses uh, alliteration in the first letters and sounds of words instead of rhyming uh, to form verse, and that's true in Beowulf as well, which is Old English. Um, English as a language changes a lot. Uh, it's unusual that way. So Old English is quite different from Middle English, which is quite different from Modern English. Uh, although you can see the roots of Modern English in Old English, and especially in Middle English. Uh, but it changes a lot more than, for example, Greek, where... Uh, a modern Greek speaker could read Homeric Greek and probably make a decent stab of it, uh, even though there's, what, 3,000 years, uh, nearly, between Homeric and modern Greek. Um, whereas English, give it a couple of centuries and it starts to become unreadable. Well, a few centuries. Jane Austen's perfectly readable. Uh, so uh, this is obviously a, a folk story, a, a legend. Um, the poet didn't make up the story, or it's very unlikely that the poet made up the story. This would be uh, a legend, a folk tale relating to Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table that was in circulation. Um, and then the poet has written his own, presumably his, could be her, um, but presumably his own version of it. 
Ronan Coughlin notes that the story is similar to an Irish story with Kuvra as the Green Knight and Cuchulain as Gawain. Apologies for my pronunciation. I'm not even sure how to pronounce Gawain or Gawain, <laughs> which I really should make my mind up which one I'm going for. Um, I am Irish. I am trying to improve my Irish pronunciation. Uh, but as you can tell from my accent, um, I'm born and raised in England and I do struggle with um, Irish pronunciations. The poem has a lot of themes, religion, oaths, sexuality, temptation. There's a lot of references to how young Arthur and his court are. The the host, Sir Bertilac, is in his prime, which I assume is maybe his 30s? Uh, early 40s at the most, but... Uh, there's, the implication is that Arthur and his knights are younger. Uh, Gawain is Arthur's nephew, but they're not massively far apart in age. I cut down the poem a lot, even though this is really long for one of my podcast stories. I did cut it down. Um, the poem has loads of detail about the hunting. Loads and loads of lengthy descriptions of hunting. Um, so Tolkien in a uh, speech, a talk he gave on the poem, talked a lot about the purpose of the hunting. He talked about the way worsening hunts are contrasted with greater temptation. Um, and of course, it keeps the Lord of the Castle out of the way. Um, Tolkien talked about how it kept the Lord of the Castle involved in the story. So we don't lose sight of him. This is ironic from the person who wrote the romance of Aragorn and Arwen, which consists of Arwen turning up early on and then turning up at the end. But there we go. Uh, anyway, I thought the hunting scenes were easily chop outable <laughs> and I had to chop something um, because this is really long for, for one of these stories. Reminder, the 12 days of Christmas are Christmas Day to January the 5th, which is 12th night. And then the Feast of the Epiphany on January the 6th marks the end of Christmas tide. So uh, if you ever wonder what the 12 days of Christmas are, or if it's a question on a pub quiz, um, it's uh, 25th December to the 5th of January are the 12 days of Christmas. Shakespeare's play's 12th night, uh, Shakespeare's play, sorry, 12th night was presumably written to be performed on January the 5th. And of course, I mentioned six geese on the sixth day of Christmas because of the song. Uh, there's several references in the poem to carol dances. Um, so carol dances in the medieval period weren't just for Christmas, the word later became associated specifically with Christmas music. But they were song and dances, so you would sing and dance, uh, which is why they're called a carol dance. Um, and they were um, something people did at parties and occasions in general. In the poem, Gawain is given a cloak edged with ermine, which I also cut from my version. Uh, but it means that Sir Bertilac is one of the richest knights in the country. There were laws governing what materials people of varying degrees of wealth could wear. And only the very richest knights, the top of the aristocracy, could wear ermine. So Sir Bertilac is very, very rich and elite <laughs> and aristocratic. Uh, being folklore, there are some oddities in this story that start to show up when you try and kind of write it in a, a sense that has in-depth characterization. Um, Gawain does keep cheating. He didn't need to cut the man's head off in the first place. This seems to be Arthur's idea to make sure that the man can't hurt him in return, if you've got to accept one blow from him without flinching in a year and a day, just make sure you kill him now and then you'll be fine. Um, he also makes a contradictory vow to the wife and then breaks his vow to the host to save his own skin. Um, he does, though, point out that the his head won't go back on once it's been chopped off. So the green man is holding him to a rather unfair bargain and Tolkien suggests that hiding the fact that he's magic isn't really quite fair at the beginning although to be honest he's half the size of a troll and literally green so they probably should have worked out that there was some magic involved. The poem never actually specifies whether the girdle really did protect him. Uh, the wife says the girdle will mean nobody can kill him. Um, it's not clear <laughs> whether it does or not because uh, Sir Bertilac doesn't actually try to kill him. Um, so whether or not the girdle actually has magical protective qualities, Gawain seems a bit doubtful, but he's sort of taking it on the grounds that he might as well. <laughs> he has nothing to lose other than breaking his vow um, by taking it. So he sort of takes it just in case it works and he keeps it to remind him of his shame for oath-breaking uh, rather than there's no suggestion that he's keeping it because he thinks it's going to protect him in the future. Um, and I did sneak in one little quote from Monty Python and the search for the Holy Grail because it's really hard to take Camelot and 
knights being tempted in a castle seriously, uh, thanks to Monty Python. So I had to include uh, the bit about I am Arthur, King of the Britons. I resisted the urge to quote Monty Python at other places. I, I was wondering if I could sneak in. Can't I have just a little bit of peril somewhere? But um, it would have taken... Uh, everybody out of the story a little bit too much, I think, if I'd tried to put that in there. <laughs> so the poem is also deeply Christian, and Tolkien talks about this in enormous amounts of detail, so I won't go into that much detail because you can read what Tolkien has to say. Um, but it is deeply Christian with what Tolkien calls elements of older fairy story. Uh, and we see this particularly in the Barrow. So like Beowulf, this is a Christian poem that has its roots in pagan stories, but it's much further from the pagan stories than Beowulf was. It's a much later poem. So whatever original pagan folktale might have been behind this, um, it's very... You, you can't sort of pick out bits and go, oh, that bit's pagan and that bit's Christian. In Beowulf, you almost can do that, and that's actually what I did in my undergraduate dissertation. But this is too far from any kind of pagan origin and it's combined with Christian stories as well and with Christian themes so you can't sort of pick out the pagan bits but the fact that the Green Chapel is a barrow um, is certainly an element of something <laughs> it's either an element of an older story or it's just uh, an indication of the the British landscape and having all these um, historical sites and even in the medieval period the British landscape was covered in ancient historical sites, you've got Stonehenge, which is obviously centuries old already. Um, you've got the the Barrows, which would be if we're if we're about the year fourteen hundred, um, an Anglo-Saxon or Viking barrow would be already a good eight hundred years old or more. And the Roman remains, which are um, about a millennium and a half old or just under that by this point. Um, so it's an indication of the the ancient ruins that are already all over the British landscape, um, as well as possibly a remnant uh, of an older story. Tolkien mentions that Christmas was the highest festival of the year, and he added in brackets to the English. Uh, specifically, some of the story takes part in Wales, um, and it was written in the West Midlands, so in this border area, in the Welsh borders, um, but Tolkien mentions that for the English in particular, Christmas is the, the highest festival of the year at this time. It's one of those common places you read a lot that uh, the Victorians invented Christmas and Christmas wasn't that big a deal before and it was a small festival before. Well, it was a fairly small festival after Oliver Cromwell banned it <laughs> during or just after the English Civil War. Uh, but in the medieval period, it wasn't a small festival. It was a big festival. It was 12 days of feasting and merriment and... All that Christmas goodness. Uh, the Green Knight wants to play a Christmas game, which is an indication that, you know, this tradition of basically staying inside and playing games um, is a very long-standing one. It's cold, it's dark, it's wet outside, so you stay in and play games. And of course there are the carol dances, which weren't specific to Christmas, but were part of it. Uh, and we have lots of green and red symbolism all over the place, which are the colours of holly. So the Green Knight seems to be a green man figure, again, thinking about the fact there's presumably some kind of pagan origin somewhere in this story. So we know the Green Chapel turns out to be a pagan burial mound. And we know that there is this figure of the green man that seems to have been some kind of traditional mythological folklore figure um, in, in Britain, in Celtic Britain. It's kind of hard to know that much about these figures. Um, so pre-Romans, the, the Druids in Britain didn't write things down. Um, so we're reliant on archaeology and texts written by Romans <laughs> to try and understand them. Um, then we have the Anglo-Saxon period uh, and then the Viking period. Um, but the texts from those are mostly Christian. Um, there's not much in the way of pagan texts. Um, the green man seems to be a figure dressed in green clothes or green leaves and in the medieval period his image appeared on inn signs. Uh, going all the way back to the Roman period there's actually a, a face, a stone face that seems to be a sort of cross between a green man and a gorgon at the Roman baths. At Bath he's got, a, it's a masculine face with a moustache which was the fashion for British men back in the Roman period. And then he has these kind of 
snake-like hair thing going on. Looks a little bit like a cross between a green man with foliage hair and a moustache and, and a, a gorgon, which is a female um, Greek mythological figure, like Medusa with the snakes for hair. Um, you also get a lot of foliate heads on churches, so faces with leaves, <laughs> usually masculine. Uh, Green Man most often connected with concepts of rebirth, renewal and regeneration. Matthews suggests he's been linked with Robin Hood, the Green Knight, Osiris and Dionysus. Robin Hood, of course, wears green, <laughs> as Green Hood. Uh, Anderson and Hicks say he's considered an archetype of the unity of humanity with the natural world and our dependence upon it. Uh, Tina Nagus, uh, who looks at animal foliate heads uh, on churches particularly, connects them uh, with Kirtimuka or the face of glory, an ancient foliage utterer of the Far East. So it's quite a mysterious figure. Um, some kind of British, whether that's Druidic, Celtic, is there an Anglo-Saxon or Viking influence in there? Maybe there's also some Greek and Roman that's got bunged in with everything else. Um, because by this point, obviously, you've had the, the Druidic Celts who lived in Britain, then you've had the Romans come in, then the Anglo-Saxons have come in, then the Vikings have come in. And when I say come in, obviously, I mean violently conquered. Um, you've got all these waves of conquest uh, coming over to Britain, and then you've got the Normans, who are themselves a combination of Viking and French, uh, mostly Viking, Norman means Northmen. Um, so more Vikings <laughs> who've come in and conquered. Bit of French in there. Um, so Britain is quite the melting pot of influences already by the medieval period. And this figure is a sort of blend of all sorts of different influences. And of course, a green-robed man at Christmas does also imply maybe a connection with Father Christmas. So Richard Fahey has pointed out the link between the Green Knight and the description of the ghost of Christmas present in Charles Dickens' Christmas Carol, uh, particularly the fact that he's carrying holly, he's robed in green, he's very tall. He has obviously green beard, but his human form has a bushy beaver-coloured beard. Um, so the Green Knight may also be connected with Father Christmas. Now, Father Christmas, or Père Noël in French, in Britain and France, is a different figure in this period from what would become Santa Claus. So, Saint Nicholas, uh, a real-life Christian saint from Turkey, he became the legendary figure of Sinterklaas in Europe, particularly Germanic Europe, uh, and eventually transferred to America and became Santa Claus. Father Christmas is not St. Nicholas. These days, they've pretty much merged into one in the UK. Uh, but right up through to the Victorian period, Father Christmas is not St. Nicholas. They are different figures. Father Christmas was essentially the personification of Christmas. He was the personification of the festival and of the spirit of Christmas, like the ghost of Christmas present. He appeared in medieval mama's plays, celebrating the annual death of vegetation and crops and so on in autumn and winter and resurrection and rebirth in spring. There are no medieval images of him. Early modern images are usually black and white, and then Victorian images can be red, green, blue, or yellow, but are most often red or green. And these are, of course, again, the colours of holly. Gerard Tolkien and C.S. Lewis both put Father Christmas in red in the Father Christmas letters and the Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, respectively. Um, Lewis describes Father Christmas's robes as red as holly berries. So red and green are basically the two most popular colours <laughs> to put Father Christmas in. Uh, and it's because of the holly. The holly is one of the um, things that you would use to decorate the home. You bring in evergreens, uh, evergreen branches into the home. The Romans used to do this in Saturnalia. It's part of medieval Christmas as well. And it's to do with, you know, it's, it's winter and it's dull and it's dark and you brighten up the home uh, with evergreens. Hollies. One of the most popular. It was also had some significance in Druidic and Celtic religion. So Father Christmas most often wears the colours of holly. So Coca-Cola did not make him wear red. Um, Coca-Cola may have cemented the idea that red was the one to go for, um, but they didn't make him wear red. And at the moment, there's a fashion for heritage sites all over England to have children meet Father Christmas in what, to quote many websites, in his traditional green robes. Uh, the assumption being that green is his original traditional colour and that red is newer because of this idea that he's only he only wears red because of Coca-Cola. 
Um, and I actually took my son to see one of these Father Christmases at the weekend, <laughs> which was good fun. Uh, and he certainly can wear green. Um, green is indeed one of Father Christmas's traditional colours. It's not any more traditional than red. Uh, they are both equally traditional colours to put Father Christmas in. In the early modern period, uh, a group of people in France, I think it was in Dijon, uh, once executed Father Christmas. They, they chose some poor unfortunate and hanged him as Father Christmas, um, but I haven't got time to go into that now. Um, I'll have to talk about that uh, on a future Christmas episode or something. So basically, there's no way of knowing, but it's possible there's a link between the Green Man and Father Christmas and the Green Knight. They have, obviously, the colour green in common. Um, they are larger-than-life figures, magical figures. And the Green Knight, certainly in this story, is very much connected with Christmas time. All of his appearances are during the 12 days of Christmas. Um, the The whole story is very specifically set around uh, the, the 12, Christmas from Christmas Eve, which is right before the first day of Christmas through to New Year's Day, which is I think day eight or something. Um, there's a reference to Gawain leaving to go and look for the Green Knight on Halloween. Or no, he leaves on All Hallows Day, which is obviously the day after Halloween, Halloween being All Hallows Eve. Uh, so there's a reference to another significant date in the British folkloric calendar or the Celtic folkloric calendar. Uh, but it's really mostly around Christmas. So there may be a connection with Father Christmas there, um, with the idea of Father Christmas as a personification of the spirit of Christmas, um, sort of combined with this ancient figure of the green man and then made into this uh, knightly figure. And he is specifically described as elvish. So um, the translation I'm using, as I mentioned, is by J.R.R. Tolkien. And uh, Tolkien fans reading Tolkien's translation will notice quite a few things. There are repeated references to Middle-earth, which is the name of the world where we live. Um, in Norse mythology, uh, Midgard, as opposed to Asgard, the high place where the, the gods live. Then there's Utgard, where the giants live, and Niflhel, the underworld, the land of the dead. Uh, but Middle-earth is the name for the, the world we live in, uh, in Norse mythology, as well as, clearly, in uh, English poetry. Um, there are repeated references to it phrased exactly that way in Tolkien's translation. Uh, the Barrow will be familiar to readers of Lord of the Rings, uh, from the Barrow Whites, uh, who are the sort of revenants, um, the sort of zombie-like uh, evil dead things um, that have been burrowed in the barrows that never make it into any of the movie adaptations because there isn't time, which is a shame because it's a good sequence. The Green Knight is specifically described as Elvish Man. Uh, the Middle English is Alwishmon. And he is also specifically described as looking like half a troll in size. And of course, George R.R. Martin fans will have noticed the heavy emphasis on oaths and oath-keeping, which is one of the major themes of Game of Thrones and one of the things that is most likely to have everything go wrong. Um, the world of Game of Thrones being a dark and depressing place, things can go horribly wrong if you break your oath, they can also go horribly wrong if you keep your oath. <laughs> but it's a major theme of, of his work and of course among his many influences uh, is obviously medieval poetry, so uh, that's not a coincidence either. So uh, if you would like some further reading on any of this, so the poem itself is available uh, in on Kindle or on paperback, uh, Sir Gawain and the Green Knight with Pearl and Sir Orfeo by J.R.R. Tolkien. Um, there is some information online on the manuscript, um, particularly particularly the British Library has some information on the, the manuscript where we have the actual 15th century copy of the poem. For general background on the medieval period, I used The Time Traveller's Guide to Medieval England by Ian Mortimer. I had a look at Tolkien's uh, essay, uh, or it was, a, it was a talk he gave on the topic of the poem, which is uh, under the title Sir Gawain and the Green Knight in the Monsters and the Critics and Other Essays, and it's also available in the book containing the translation. I also had a look at Ronan Coughlin's The Encyclopedia of Arthurian Legends. Um, I had a look at History UK's page on a medieval Christmas and their History of England. I was alerted to the fact that this is a Christmas story by Richard Fahey's Yuletide Monsters, Christmas Hauntings in Medieval Literature and Modern Popular Culture, uh, which is at a website on manuscript studies uh, from, I think that's the University of Notre Dame? Yes, University of Notre Dame, uh, Medi Medieval Studies Research Blog. Um I have read this story before. I hadn't read the full poem. I read the story in an absolutely 
gorgeous book I had, one of my favourite books as a child, which was this beautiful hardback illustrated uh, retelling of stories of King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table. One of my absolute favourite childhood books. I still have it on my bookshelf. <laughs> a very well-worn book. And I remember the story of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight uh, from that book. I had another look when I was writing this. Um, it's a, a quite a brief version, a retelling for children, obviously, without some of the details. Um, but uh, so, yeah, I, I knew the story, but I had I had completely forgotten it was Christmas story. Um, so Richard Fahey's article um, pointed out to me uh, that it's a Christmas story, as well as looking at a few bits of the Middle English itself. And if you have access uh, to online journal articles through JSTOR, um, I also used uh, Claude Luttrell's article, The Folktale Element in Sagawain and the Green Knight uh, from Studies in Philology. And I used Tina Negus's article, Medieval Foliate Heads, a Photographic Study of Green Men and Green Beasts in Britain, uh, which is in the journal Folklore. So thank you so much for listening. Happy Hanukkah, happy Christmas, happy Yule, Yo Saturnalia, happy holidays, happy New Year, did I miss any? Happy whichever festival I have forgotten to mention that happens around this time of year. Um, I hope uh, you all get a lovely break if you are living in a country that has a break at this time of year. I know I'm certainly looking forward to it. Uh, Tolkien mentioned Christmas was the highest festival of the year in medieval England, and that is still true in modern England. We, uh, we don't have all that many major holidays and major festivals. Christmas is basically it. Um, so very happy <laughs> that we're coming up to a, a Christmas and New Year break. Uh, Creepy Classics will be back in late February um, with another ancient medieval or early modern ghost story. So thank you for listening. Creepy Classics is written and performed by Juliet Harrison. Music composed and performed by Ed Harrison. It's produced by Juliet Harrison with assistance from Newman University. Newman University.